This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before the news even breaks as well as the insight analysis and all the topics that you're discussing and want to know about. Friday's edition of this podcast brings you the return of one of our very old friends and a very, very special man for us, Mr. Liam Senior, uh, currently um, specialist um, assistant coach at Derby County, as well as, of course, Duncan Castles, the transfer guru himself. We will start quickly with a bit of news, as we always like to do. Um, Duncan, I'm just going to give you what I've heard about Real Madrid and Neymar, and that is that Madrid have dispatched a three-man delegation, hefty on, um, it has to be said, their authority to try and coax PSG to um, sell Neymar to them instead of Barcelona. However, having spoke to one of that delegation, um, what I've been told is that they don't believe that um, that transfer will happen because Neymar has his his heart set on going back to Barcelona uh, and will resist any attempts um, by PSG to sell him to Madrid. Uh, What I was told uh, in a conversation this afternoon was that the Madrid delegation expect Neymar will end up at Barcelona, but only in the last two or three days of the window, and it will be a loan deal um, with an obligation to purchase. Potentially, there will be a player swapping deal involved. But it's interesting, I think, Duncan, that Madrid are making this. I guess um, we know that Florentino Perez, this is his project, but they have um, they've been serious about their interest and they remain serious, and I, I understand that they will remain in Paris, certainly until tomorrow and another round of meetings. Do you think there's any chance that Neymar could go to, to, to Madrid rather than Barcelona? I think there, I think there is. I think it's a, it's a very complex situation. It's a bit like a poker table. Um, they're waiting. Madrid are waiting for Neymar to um, accept that PSG won't let him go to Barcelona. Barcelona are trying to pressure, I'm told, Neymar to sort of publicly state that his preference is to go back there. Um, and therefore kind of commit himself in, in the public domain to, to moving there to make it harder for the Madrid switch to happen. I'm told that Neymar's trying to avoid that. Um, his preference, as you say, very much to return to Barcelona, but his his priority to get out of Paris Saint-Germain, and, and I'm told he doesn't want to close that door off. So it's... Um, it's really um, a complex scenario at the moment. And I have talked to someone today who is close to the Madrid camp and his feeling was that uh, Madrid are the more likely team to get him. But um, whether that will pan out or not, I, I really don't know at this stage. It's um, got to get a, an acceptable offer to Paris. Paris prefer him to go to Madrid. Player prefers to, to go to Barcelona, which side is going to uh, cave in uh, and allow the other to win is the, remains the question mark here. 
I think there's a big problem here, Duncan, with regards to um, the, if you like, the PR side of this. Barcelona clearly um, made all the moves to get uh, Neymar to return to the camp now. Um, and if they lost him now to Madrid, that would be seen as a massive, massive defeat for them even before La Liga starts in earnest. Okay, there's been one round of games so far and that's something which both Barcelona uh, and Neymar himself would not want to happen. However, um, I think as you rightly say, it looks to me like Madrid are in a better financial position to offer closer to what PSG want in terms of cash and maybe, maybe a player. So if it gets to the point where it's a loan deal um, I'm told that um, PSG are not um, unwilling to allow the loan fee, which would be substantive, um, to be included in the transfer fee because they know that Neymar will be a very, very uh, big stink in their dressing room if he's forced to go beyond September 2nd and remain in Paris. Um, however, as I said, I think it looks to me like it's going to be, uh, it'll go to the wire. Would you agree with that? It certainly looks that way. Um, interested to know what Liam's opinion is on this. It's, uh, we, we find it very strange that you've got two clubs, two of the biggest clubs in football, pushing to, to sign a player who um, has clearly caused problems at his current club um, and has been offered around a lot of other places in Europe and, and major clubs de- decline to take him. What's your view as a, as a coach on, on this um, scenario? Yeah, I think there's there's two sides to this. I think on the footballing side, um, from a, from a footballing coach's perspective, um, if I if I'm if I'm a Barcelona manager right now, would I want Neymar, with the likes of Griezmann, Messi, Suarez, and and the like, to come into that dressing room? Could I form a team that would function well in terms of winning the ball back? Yes, you'd have creative players, but that's only one part of the game. Um, I think this is about commercial. Uh, it's, it's a commercial thing for, for Real Madrid and Barcelona. From a footballing point of view, I think the logical step for Neymar is to, is to, jo- is to join Real Madrid. Um, I think they need that. Hazard's obviously gone there, but in terms of that real Galactico element to their team, I think Neymar's a better fit for them right now. But I think this comes down to money. I think it comes down to the commercial status of each club, which makes it so hard for, for, for managers and coaches alike to work around that and also get the best team possible out on the pitch. Liam, I think um, Dunk was being very, very kind of um, sensitive there. I think what he meant to say was, as a coach, would you touch Neymar with a barge pole? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, listen, Neymar, listen, is, is in terms of his ability, his footballing ability is, is without question. You know, when he's fit and he's flying, he can do things with the football that not many players in the world can do. But in terms of productivity in terms of fit into a team into a system that consistently wins not just league titles but the Champions League which is what, what both Real Madrid and Barcelona want I don't see, he's not someone that I as a, as a coach would say yep that's a player that I want to desperately go and get especially with the likes of Griezmann Messi and Suarez in, in Barcelona's team I just don't know where he fits in that, in that. I know he had a great time a, a year or so ago or two years ago at Barcelona but that time has passed and I think he's he's become almost a caricature of himself. I don't think he's helped himself in his antics at PSG. And sometimes it's not worth that stress away from the pitch for the productivity on the pitch. In terms of the dressing room, Liam, 
you obviously have been part of a lot of, you know, very strong dressing rooms during your playing yeah. career as well as now in your coaching career. What does adding a troubled child, as Neymar was described to us by one of our um, Brazilian um, friends recently, um, do in terms of upsetting the equilibrium of the dressing room? Um, should you bring him into either Barcelona or Real Madrid for that matter? in terms of, you know, is it going to be a positive because of his skill or will the negativity outweigh the positive because of his antics, because of his social life and his habits and everything yeah. else? No, I think it's a gamble. I think it's a huge gamble. I think in order to win games of football, yes, you need to have chemistry on the pitch, but you need to have complete synergy and chemistry off the pitch. And if I look in, if looking at Neymar coming into, say, Barcelona's dressing room, one of the reasons he left PSG in, in the first place was because he didn't want to play second fiddle to Messi in terms of being the overall star for, for a football club. So I don't see how that, that dynamic would change over a course of a relatively short time from, from his time at PSG. So for me as a manager um, or, or a coach, it's just a, a problem I just wouldn't want to have. I'm not saying that he would definitely be a problem would he join Barcelona and Real Madrid, but it's still a huge gamble to make sure that your dressing room is in working order and everyone is pulling in the same direction. Duncan, that one will run and run, but please keep us updated, as you always do, um, with the potential transfer of the once-said Portuguese wonder kid, Renato Sanchez, who um, has spent time on loan away from Bayern Munich in uh, the past, and the potential transfer to Lille. Yeah, there's like an agreement there between Lille and Bayern Munich um, to take Renato Sanchez uh, from the Bundesliga to um, one of France's Champions League teams. It's for 20 million euros, um, full transfer. I think he's going to join in a five-year contract and he's been in Lille today to take his medical. Um, so a fascinating move on Lille's um, behalf that he's just turned 22. Um, he was signed by Bayern for an initial 35 million in a deal that could have risen to 90 million, depending on uh, bonuses, some of which included uh, making the Ballon d'Or shortlist and being named in the FIFA Team of the Year, which I think tells you how highly regarded he was at the time. And remember, Bayern stepped in, did that deal during the season uh, to get the player ahead of clubs like Manchester United, um, Juventus, basically um, Real Madrid were also interested at the time. The top clubs in European football were all trying to get the player. It went badly wrong for him in Germany. Um, I believe uh, he, he found it very difficult to adapt, uh, not just to the league, but but also to the country, um, I, I think from a, a personal level. And I think that's why it's um, such a could be a very intelligent move by Leo because they're getting a real talent there for a low price. Um, he won't have as much attention on him. He'll be surrounded uh, by uh, a Portuguese element that work at Leo, um, who will be focusing on getting the best out of him there. And um, if they see anything like the way he played for Benfica and when he was involved in winning the, the European Championship for Portugal, then the, then it should prove a very sound investment. Um, but interesting to, to see how quickly you know, your star can fall in world football these days. Liam, you obviously have tracked Renato Sanchez's kind mm. of development, as it were. He, he did spend some time at Swansea alone. Are you surprised that he's not kicked on and, and been 
the player that everyone thought he would be? Uh, yes, I am. I remember watching him four, four years ago and I just thought, wow, he's a midfield player who can do absolutely everything. Technically, he's a wonderful footballer. He, has the energy, he had the energy and drive to go and win the ball back for your team, which is key for a midfield player. And when he moved to, to Bayern Munich, I was so excited for him. I thought it was a great move. I think I thought German football, in terms of his, his, his intensity as a player, would suit him down to the ground. But then the environment is key, and where he lives and cultural issues come into it. And he's, we've got to remember this at the time was an 18 year old. You're still a kid moving to a new country, and you just don't know how they're going to respond. And, um, you know, his time at Swansea wasn't clouded in glory at all. You know, he found his, he didn't even, in the end, he wasn't even in the, in the team at Swansea. Um, it just goes to show how important those elements and factors off the pitch are to, to making the player become the player that he can be. But for me, it's still 22. If he can get back anywhere near the form he showed at Benfica, and as Duncan rightly said, Portugal in the Euros, he's got an absolute sniff and a bargain of a player. Um, so that the natural ability is there. It's just finding the right team dynamic and the right environment for him to flourish in. It'd be very interesting to see how Renato Sanchez um, does develop at Lille should that transfer go through. Um, Liam, we're very, very um, uh, obviously privileged to have you on the podcast. Um, no, 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 no. We, we love to have you on because you're one of those people who uh, gives us insight and articulation, which you know we rarely get in terms of um, access to coaches and players. Um, you obviously have made a big step up um, through the summer. Um, our listeners know you from being a player at Brighton uh, and obviously other clubs as well, but also being the coach of the under-23s uh, as assistant there at Brighton. You're now specialist assistant first-team coach at Derby County under Philip Koku. And what's that been like for you in terms of, I mean, just give us an idea, a little insight into what the changes have been for you and um, how you felt in terms of um, where your learning curve has gone. Yeah. Uh, in, with coaching itself over the last what maybe eight twelve weeks. Yeah, it's been you know initially I was I was so excited you know when um, when Derby called me um, it, it came out of the blue. I had a few phone calls from other uh, championship clubs in in the summer expressing their interest in me joining their club and um, you know it seems to have happened really quickly. But behind the scenes, you know, I've been working really hard. Had my pro license while I was still playing and I was I was coaching pretty much every day as a player at, at Brighton's Academy and I'm forever thankful to that club for, for what they've done for me and it was a difficult decision to leave. Uh, in terms of, of now, like what, what an opportunity for a young English coach to learn from someone like Philip Koku. You know, as a player, his, his time at Barcelona, I think he was the record holder um, in terms of appearances before Messi in terms of the amount of games he played for Barcelona. He's coached at World Cup finals. He's, he's done everything in the game. So for me to learn from him, um, and his and his staff is a fantastic experience for me, and, and hopefully we can be successful. A lot of controversy, Liam, um, with regards to rule changes in the game, and also the introduction of VAR. Now we know that doesn't apply to Championship clubs, as in VAR. A few difficult uh, weekends for officials regarding the new handball rule. I'm sure yeah. you were privy to. Um, the uh, briefings from the referee's body um, before the season started on things like this. What's been your interpretation of how things have worked out and how you see it as a former player and now a coach? Yeah, it's very difficult for referees now with, with the new technology coming in. We were briefed on the new rules 
especially in terms of handball, uh, we were briefed that any uh, accidental handball leading up to a goal uh, would be the goal would be disallowed for the attacking player. So even if it's uh, the slightest touch, it wouldn't be cast as a goal in the build-up. So you know, I can see the frustration already caused in the in the Manchester City Tottenham game. But by the letter of the law now. Um, that wasn't a goal, and as, as, as you know, as, as crazy as it sounds, we were all briefed on the on the new rulings. So we, as coaches, are trying to get the best understanding of the new rules. But with, with everything, it takes time. You know that we're trying to improve the game. We're trying. There's so much money involved in terms of promotion to the Premier League, relegation from the Premier League, that you don't want to miss out on that and, and the importance of the club. You know, there's people who lose their jobs behind the scenes at football clubs if you get relegated. It's so important. It's people's livelihoods. So I understand the reasoning behind VAR. For me, the frustration of it is trying to come to a decision as quickly as possible because we want to keep the flow of the game. That's why we love this sport. It's so open. It flows fantastically well. We, we don't want to take that away from, from what is a wonderful, wonderful sport. Well, one of the things about the Championship, Liam, as you well know, having played... Um, extensively in that league is both the durability and the excitement and also the unpredictability of that league mm. generally regarded as the hardest league in the world to get promoted from. Um, yeah. Do the new rules make it more difficult or less difficult? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, how does it yeah. work out for you guys? I, just, I think it's the same. I think it's the same for every club. I just think they felt that they needed to clarify the rules because there were goals that happened in the past, especially with a handball rule where there was an accidental handball that would lead up to a goal and it would, the goal would stand when it was a clear handball because the handball was accidental. So I can see the, you know, the, the referees and, and the officiators of, of, the, of the laws of the game trying to make things as crystal clear as possible. Uh, we're all aware in the championship of the rules. Obviously, we're not affected by, by VAR. Hopefully, we will be next season when we're in the Premier League at Derby. But, um, you know, it's just something that takes time. Whenever you have big changes in any sport, it takes time to acclimatise to it. it. It takes time to, to get used to it. But um, that's our job, is to be adaptable as coaches and to, to give our teams the best possible opportunity to win football matches. As a player, if you were mm. at Laporte last Saturday evening and the ball, completely by accident and by no um, judgment of your own, deflects off your arm into the... Mm path of Gabriel Jesus who then scores the winning goal in the 92nd mm. minute how would you have felt being I'm out of Laporte for the fact that you you know by no as I said fault of your own have yeah. disqualified a, a winning goal for your team yeah obviously you're disappointed but part of our job as coaches we we had a referee come in and, and brief all of the players on all of the rules because the last thing we want as coaches for players to show their frustration to the officials if they don't know the rules and get sent off and, and then you're, you're losing out in, in those terms as well. So if you understand the rules, it's so important as a player, you understand the laws of the game and have an understanding of the decision that the referee's made. And, and by the letter of the law, as, as innocuous as that situation was, it always seems to happen on the first or second weekend of the season. By the letter of the law, every player should know that that, that goal shouldn't have stood. It's, it's interesting you say that, Liam, and it, clearly you're, you're telling us that, that um, everyone's been briefed that way in the league. And yeah. So they, they have told the players any contact um, with the hand in the box is a foul. What, what, um, what came out after that Laporte goal was um, people had a look at the rule and the way it's actually phrased. And mm. it, um, 
it, it's <laughs> it's actually ambiguous because it says um, it's an offence if a player gains possession or control of the ball after yeah. it's touched their hand or arm and then creates a scoring opportunity. So the argument would be that, um, that Laporte didn't gain control of the ball and and then yeah. create a scoring opportunity. It bounced off him. But obviously the, the league has presented it or the PGMOL has presented it in a in a stronger fashion than the way the, yeah. the rule was written by IFAB, which is I think caused some problems, at least um, for the media and the general public. Yeah, and that's that's why it needs it, the the wording of laws and and the way you phrase them is so important. Um, for me, if if any, the way I was briefed as a coach, if if any action, if a hand touches the ball from from a from an attacking player and has a part to play in a goal, that goal won't stand. So yeah. as innocuous as that touch was. As um, as small or slight, this slight change of a ball. But we know the fractions of football. Slight is an inch can be the difference between hitting the post and scoring a goal. So for me, um, as soon as the VAR was shown that the ball touched his hand, then as a coach, I'm saying, well, that's not a goal. Um, yeah. And and that's why. And so I understand the wording and phrasing, but at the end of the day, it touches Laporte's hand. It gives Manchester City an advantage, albeit by the slightest of touches. And then they go on to score the goal. And that's one of the reasons that the referees did actually bring in that law was, was to stop that kind of thing happening. Sure. And, and stepping away from, obviously, you have a, a duty as a coach to ensure your players adhere to the law as it's being applied by the officials um, yeah. who are running the game. But stepping away from that, from your role as a coach and as, a, as a, an ex-footballer, do you feel that application is fair? Or do you think they've taken it too far by... Um, by making any contact with the, the attacker's arm, um, the source of a foul if a goal is scored. Yeah, I think it's a very, that's the reason we love the game, is because the most innocuous things can turn into the most important things. You know, so many slight mis, misjudgments of, of positioning of players on a pitch is why I think it's the most wonderful sport in the world. I think in this example, it's the most, it's amazing, it's the most extreme, probably, example of it you're ever going to get. And it happened on the very first weekend of the season. So it's, it's one of those things that football seems to throw up. For me, there will be over the season more and more clear-cut in, in, instances of players touching the ball with their hand, leading to a goal. And then all of a sudden, you have a situation where goals shouldn't stand and they won't stand now because of the technology we now have in the game. Um, I saw Pep Guardiola's comments recently on trying to make the game as fair as possible and his understanding of why VAR been incorporated into our game and I'm in complete agreement with them because I, I feel that because of the stakes of, of football now not just from a financial point of view how much money fans pay to go and watch their teams play home and away you want to make the best decisions and the most correct decisions in order for your team to have a fair advantage or un- and take away that unfair element from the game It's going to roll on and on I think these uh, debates throughout the season guys uh, with regards to VAR <laughs> and also the handball rule um, yeah. It seems to me, and 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 Duncan and I discussed this uh, earlier in the podcast this week, Liam, that um, there does seem to be a kind of robotization um, feeling about how things, how decisions are made now. Um, we're yeah. taking away the element of the human um, decision, which is the referee on the pitch, yeah. and we're giving it over to um, secondary and, and and possibly tertiary um, other. Uh, factors in terms of uh, looking at video evidence and everything else. However, 
Um, I think you're right in what you say, that everyone wants the same thing, which is decisions to be correct. Um, it's yeah. just about how accurate those decisions are or are not yeah. in terms of um, the way that things um, turn out. Yeah, I also um, think it's really important at the speed of the decision making. I, I've seen some of the ins instances with VAR after, over the first two weekends of the season, and it's taken way too long for them to come to that decision. And and that's one thing we love the game because the game is free flowing. Football is a free 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 flowing sport. So some decisions that are taking two and three minutes to come, I just don't see why it would take that long with the technology that we have. And I think that's something that needs to be improved on moving forward with the technology. Would that be your biggest kind of um, issue in terms of improving how the technology works then? Definitely. Um, I just think it's, it's taking too long. I think if you have the technology, you can clearly see within 20 seconds whether, whether a player's offside, whether a handball infraction's been made. And we want to keep the flow of the game going because, you know, I'm seeing the game stop for three minutes after a goal for an innocuous offside on the other side of the pitch. I think that's taking it too far, and I agree with you that then that actually does take away from what is a wonderful sport. Just wanted to ask you about one other implication of of the use of VAR, which um, occurred to me might be having an effect on the championship, even though you don't have it in the division, and that's um, they're using select Group One referees to operate the VAR to be the VARs in in Stockley Park, and as a result. Yeah. Um, they basically have a shortage of, of select group one referees because they're, they're overworked. We saw the Chelsea game at the weekend that um, Graham Scott didn't, was uh, stopped uh, by traffic from yeah, uh, attending the game. So the fourth official, yeah. who wasn't yeah. select one, ended up stepping up and, and taking charge of a Premier League game, which is very unusual. It occurs to me that that use of select group ones as VARs must reduce the pool of the, the top quality referees that you can have at the championship games, i.e. you'll be going, you'll be getting referees from further down the PGM yeah. Wells pecking order uh, being placed in charge of championship games this season. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, that's a really good point that, that you've made. And obviously you want, you know, no matter what league you're in, you want the very best offici officiating happening in your, in your league and your game. Um, I just think in terms of the way that it works, I think when you have VAR or, or new things coming into the game, you always see um, a negative side to it. Now, for me, all referees right, should be going through the training of VAR because they will have to move up. They, will have, they want to eventually, um, their ambition is to get into that select group one. So in order for them to do that, they should be working closely with the select group one referees so they have an understanding of VAR, and actually then you have a bigger pool of more qualified referees who, who are able to work at the top level. So I understand the select group one, select group two, but you want to have a more transparent process in order to have the best officiating at, at every level. Because I can see within three years this being, we have the technology and, and, and the finances now in the championship to, to have VAR. So it's going to be a matter of time before it's brought in through, throughout the whole of English football. Well, that's indeed an intriguing um, consequence of VAR that Duncan has brought up there and that Liam's discussed with regards to um, the quality of refereeing at full stop because obviously if the uh, better referees uh, are being promoted uh, into VAR 
uh, lorries, we have to say, or wherever it is in Stockley Park, um, then they're not out there on the field in championship games week in, week out. And uh, therefore, as Liam said, we'd like to have our best referees on the pitch rather in a um, a lorry talking about um, decisions elsewhere. From that controversial part of the game to um, a rather darker one, which we, you know, we have to discuss and that we need to address, and that is the um, the racism and racist abuse which some players have recently experienced um, on social media, um, and the issues which, which this has, um, I guess, again, risen um, in terms of uh, what can we do about it and how can we uh, combat it, etc., etc. Because Tammy Abraham received racist uh, abuse on Twitter uh, after missing a penalty in the European Super Cup shootout. And then also the same for Paul Pogba, um, having missed a penalty or a penalty that was saved um, last weekend as well. And Manchester United have now um, scheduled a meeting with social media companies with regards to trying to find a, I get not a resolution, but certainly um, some kind of way forward in trying to um, prevent or indeed at least combat that kind of thing. Liam, as a player yourself of mixed race, um, I know that you've experienced racist comments and abuse and everything else, and I'm sure as someone's on social media that's happened as well. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're not surprised by this, but do you think there is a way that we can find to ad- address it and hopefully try and certainly at, at, at some point, um, hopefully uh, take it out altogether? It's, it's, it's really, again, we're talking about changes in football, and this is a massive change in, in our society is social media, because now you are within two seconds of writing a statement or putting a picture up that can that can really destroy someone's self-confidence, their value, their self-esteem and who they are as a person. I think it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent with, with the younger generations. And it's how do you stop um, somebody from, from writing something, whether it's homophobic, racial, uh, any type of prejudice or any type of um, disrespectful uh, nonsense that they, that they could, that they feel that they could, they're able to write as so-called keyboard warriors. It's something that I think needs to be addressed by the likes of Twitter or Instagram, where I think every message needs to be screened. But how difficult is it to do that? Because you've got millions upon millions of posts going up every single day. Um, for me, look, I'm, I'm a black person. Um, my dad's black, my mom's white. Um, and I'm going to say something that sounds really strange, but it doesn't, one, surprise me, but it doesn't, two, even upset me anymore because I'm almost immune or desensitized to the amount of times it's happened, you know? So, so for me, rather than um, get upset and angry about it, it's something that is becoming more and more prevalent in our society. And we need to come up with solutions rather than saying this is terrible and getting angry about it. We really need to find out why people still in, in, in the year 2019 are, are living and thinking and, and writing things in, in, in this way. I think it's a societal problem. I think more and more extremism is happening in our, in our society. You know, the likes of Brexit, speaking about immigration. And we've, we've worked so hard. So many people work so hard in society 
to try and get everyone to understand that no matter the color of your skin, whether you're gay, straight, we're all one, one people. We, 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 we all deserve the respect that, that we deserve to have as human beings on this planet. They seem to be going backwards. And I think that's being accentuated through, through these post-social media. Duncan, there's a lot of um, questions and very little answers to this particular issue. Um, is it possible, do you think, that social media platforms themselves can address this through filtering or identifying individual users in order to um, verify accounts, etc., so that therefore um, the perpetrators of this kind of abuse can be banned? I think there's certainly a lot more that social media companies can do. I think they've been pushed by external pressures to, to, do, to make some changes, but at present the system is one of someone has to complain about an individual tweet before Twitter, for example, will, will look at it and do anything with it. I don't think that is enough. Um, it shouldn't require a complaint for it to go through. I'm sure Twitter basically use a, a software process to initially filter these complaints before a person looks at them. So if they're using software once um, the complaint has been flagged up to them, they should be able to use that software when the, um, the tweets are uh, originated. Um, and you know, software that that uh, that uh, verges on the on the side of being safe in terms of avoiding certain trigger words is probably a good way to go. I think there is a fundamental issue in that people can have anonymous, um, unverified accounts on Twitter. Um, I know if um, if you complain about a particular tweet and Twitter decides that it's okay by their rules it's impossible to then uh, find out who the person behind that anonymous account is if you want to take that um, complaint up off um, Twitter's own platform. I think that's that's a fundamental part of the problem here is it allows uh, people to hide behind the screen, to hide behind false identities and, uh, and be aggressive and uh, destructive um, and, and, you know, say things that uh, I think a lot of these people wouldn't have the courage to say face to face um, to the individuals they're, they're targeting. So I think there's, a, there's definitely a problem there. And, and I think Liam's absolutely right in identifying that we have a, a much broader um, societal problem. And, um, you know, we, we, we're going through a period in the UK where um, xenophobia, uh, racism is being essentially approved by people running the country um, and by people who have, uh, have you know, driven uh, the UK to, um, to leave the EU on the basis of arguments based uh, around um, race and otherness. And it's not a surprise that once that is um, deemed to be acceptable by people um, who are in positions of responsibility and authority, that others copy it and use platforms where it's it's easy to attack others as um, as a basis to um, attack others. It would be great if we could address us at the base level, um, and it's certainly the case that um, the prominence of um, racial prejudice against footballers um, in terms of uh, the experiences of both Demi Abraham and uh, Paul Pogba recently um, have made a point. Uh, certainly, it would also be the case that <clears throat> if given the high profile of football, that we could lead in some way 
to make sure that things change. Um, that would be great. Um, uh, Liam, I'm not sure that that's going to be the case because um, I know that you've had a long history of experiencing this kind of stuff on a day-by-day basis. Um, but do you think that since these things are being brought to a head, we've got mm. a better chance of a better future? Yeah, I, I think it, it, when you speak about these issues, I think it stems from education. And I think Duncan's hit the nail on the head in terms of we are giving we are giving prejudice and we are giving racism and, and xenophobia a real platform in the way that we are depicting um, political issues like immigration, uh, the way that we speak about the way that um, certain politicians and presidents in America uh, speak about different denominations or different nations or different races of people. So I think education and positive role models in society is is long term the only way you can solve this problem. And I, is every racist person or anyone who's ever said anything racist a bad person? No, I put it down to lack of education, lack of understanding and lack of empathy. And that's something that takes a long, long time to fix. But, you know, you cannot give up the fact that it's going to be hard, a difficult process, but you can, you can make, um, you can make judgments on these people. You can, you can penalize them, you can punish them. But even if they stop, Putting, posting these messages on Twitter, they still have exactly the same thought process. And that's where we need to change it, is to make people understand that no matter what the colour of your skin is, you're still a person who deserves to be respected. I think it's a very strong message, uh, people, uh, for everyone who's listening. And I know that you uh, agree because we've got a very articulate and intelligent um, listenership here on the Transfer Window podcast. Um, so please spread that word far and wide. We're going to have a little bit of fun now because obviously we'll address the uh, big serious issues. Quick fire round, legendary though it is. Um, I'm going to ask both Duncan and Liam to name their Liverpool versus Arsenal combined best team because obviously that's the big game of the Premier League this weekend. Um, I'll ask each of them. Uh, for the position, we're going to go for four-three-three formation. Uh, Duncan, I'm going to ask you first, and please remember, injuries are inclusive here. Uh, so please tell me what your goalkeeper will be for this particular selection. Um, I like Adrian as a goalkeeper. I think Liverpool have done very well in, uh, in getting him as a, their backup to Alison Becker, but I think we're going to put Bernd Leno in as the uh, first choice here. Um, partly from the perspective of to try and get some Arsenal players into this combined 11 because it's not going to be that easy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Come on then, Liam, give us your goalkeeper. Yep, same uh, at the moment. And obviously, Alisson would be, would be playing if, if he's fit, but I think Bernd Leno is someone that you can you can rely on and I think he'll, he'll improve as the season goes on. I, he made a few mistakes last season, but I think he... Being in England the first year is always difficult for a, for a goalkeeper to come and acclimatise to a different type of football. And I think he'll be a positive for Arsenal this year. Duncan, please give me your defence left to right and then we can make it as quick far as we can. OK, well, uh, I think the full-backs are easy. Um, Andy Robertson, Alexander-Arnold, um, Virgil van Dijk obviously has to be there and I'm going to squeeze David Luiz in because I've always liked... Oh, he's liked so David predictable. So predictable. I like David as a player. He I, loves I a Brazilian, this boy. Loves, loves it. I think with his, I think with his passing uh, and the ball is a real weapon. Um, and, uh, you what? Can 
Well, he's probably get from seventy yards out to the touchline, but he never actually hits the player. Is that what you're saying? No, that's what you're saying. I know you don't like it, <laughs> <laughs> but you can get you can get away with some of those errors when you've got Virgil Van Dyke coming up for you. Be my Fair enough. Liam. Yeah, I have to disagree with Duncan there. <laughs> I'm pleased to hear that. Player. As a coach, he's the type of centre half that on a Friday night before a Saturday game, you won't be able to get any hours sleep worrying about what was going to happen on a Saturday. I like, uh, I, I, I like my defenders to be able to defend first, you know, and if you look at Virgil van Dijk, he's fantastic on the ball. And I would go as far as to say, actually, that van Dijk is probably as good, if not better, than David Luiz on the ball, but he's such an outstanding defender as well that we speak about those qualities first. So for me, the the change, I, would, I, would, I, I think Joe Gomez is going to be an outstanding footballer and it would be a complete different back four. Duncan, your midfield three, please. Uh, Fabinho holding. Don't think there's a question over that one. Um, I would. I know he's only played um, one start in the Premier League, but he was very highly rated before he came here. And I think Danny Sabalas has got an argument um, for getting in there, and that and he would add that creativity that's sometimes lacking in Liverpool's midfield. Um, and then I'd probably have Wijnaldum in as the uh, as the third of, of three there. Interesting. Liam, do yeah, you think? I actually do. I think Danny Ceballos will be one of the standout players in the, in the Premier League this year. I watched him very closely. Uh, Real Madrid, I watched him very closely in the under-21 Euros and he is an absolutely outstanding footballer. I think Unai Emery's done an incredible job to get him to Arsenal and I think he'll be an, he'll be an absolutely incredible signing for them. So he makes it into my midfield along with Fabinho who I think is one of the most underrated players in the Premier League. And I think Vinaldum as well gives you that energy and that drive in midfield that, that you need. I think he's a very, very good technical footballer. And now to the potentially most divisive of the um, combined 11, the front three, given that two of them were, um, oh, so one of them certainly was, uh, no, three between the two clubs, I should say, were um, Golden Boot sharers. Duncan, okay. um, who would make your front three? I think, um, I mean, you try to get Aubameyang in that team because of the goals he scored, but I think you really have to say it's got to be Manny, Firmino, Salah because they work so well together. Um, I think if you were going to make a change, um, you'd move Salah central and put Nicola Pepe on the right um, and see if they would work as a system together. And, and that's something I think Liverpool had been considering through the window when they when they uh, talked to Pepe's agent uh, about moving there. But realistically, proven success, you go for the Liverpool front three. Liam? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to go against that, but I think Aubameyang's goal-scoring record is absolutely incredible. And he's, he's done it in a team that haven't been consistently winning football matches week in, week out. So as, as good as that front three is, I would... I think Salah Mane and Aubameyang would cause absolute huge problems for any club in the world. Ah, got a lot of disagreement, especially on the uh, Transfer Window <laughs> podcast, because normally we, we kind of tend to agree to disagree. But um, I'm loving this. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your contributions um, on the Friday podcast. Um, if you want to continue the debate with us, then of course you can at Duncan Castles is um, for Duncan to uh, get in touch with him at Brasenior and that's uh, is, is, is it correct it's the lower slash Liam yeah 
Lower yeah. slash, yeah. Lower slash Liam23. Uh, of course, I'm at Garbo SJ. You all know that because you always ask me why that's the case. Uh, and of course, that transfer podcast is our Twitter handle um, to uh, pull all together. If you have liked uh, the podcast, and please give something back, which of course is uh, going on to iTunes and giving us a five star review, which would be great. I'd like to say thank you very much to um, Liam Rossini for joining us uh, on this particular pod. Thank you, Liam. It's been great to have you on. Um, and always, pleasure. Yeah, no, no, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And of course, uh, to Duncan as well. We will see you again through the transfer window on Monday. And for now, all good says thanks for listening. Yeah.